This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Welcome back to the Fighting on Film podcast, everybody. And as we come off the back of our Market Garden specials, we go back to 1942. We stick on our windproof smocks and hop into a canoe as we look back at 1955's The Cockleshell Heroes. And who better to join us for this one than none other than historian Saul David, who has just released a book on the SBS called Silent Warriors. Saul, we're delighted to have you on the show. Oh, delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, the book's, the book's doing so well. We're, we're really glad to, to see it doing so well. It's good. To, it's well-timed, actually, this the podcast, I have to say, a week after publication. Yeah. I mean, I've, I'm full of cockleshell heroes, real stories. Uh, and having recent, recently watched the film, it's a nice contrast, frankly, between the two. <laughs> yeah. So as we do, we'll, we'll go for, route through the cast quickly, get into production, then talk about the meat of the film. So, I mean, yeah, it's a big cast, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, it's, it's full of those great, 50s British character actors isn't it you've got Victor Madden in there and Percy Herbert of course you have Trevor Howard this is his peak isn't it in the 50s you know yeah, he's is. he's on form in every, everything he's in um, but the lead is um, Jose Ferrer uh, who plays Major Jeffrey uh, Stringer when when I watched it I, I didn't quite catch what his backstory was supposed to be I don't think they make it super clear he's just sort of introduced as like an unorthodox um, sort mm. of uh, he's not even actually a Royal Marine officer, is he? He's he's just sort of, um, 
I don't know. He's been introduced because of his skills with canoes, and and then he becomes a major. He's almost a a a, a mix of of people in real life. That is, of course, uh, uh, Blondie Hasler. But Blondie yeah. Hasler was a regular, and he clearly is supposed to be the you know the gentleman amateur. And he reminds me very much of Courtney, who's the guy who sets up the original SBS. So I think they've almost done a composite of of his character. Mm. And then, of course, they've introduced him in that way because they want the counterpoint with Captain Thompson, who's played by Trevor Howard. So, uh, and as you say, Trevor Howard. I mean, who who wouldn't want to watch Trevor Howard in almost any film? My favorite, by the way, is in the nineteen sixties, which is uh, of course the Charge of the Light Brigade, another subject I've written. Oh about. yes. I mean, who yes. better to play? Lord Cardigan and Trevor Howard, just fantastic. Mm. He plays it really well. He's so irascible in that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because the film was supported. This moves a little bit into into uh, production. No problem. Um, but the film was supported by the the Royal Navy and Royal Marines, and it's really interesting that they they have Howard as a a, a passed over captain. He's, you know, he's uh, he explains his backstory a little bit um, once the mission is uh, is green lit, and he tells. Uh, well, I don't. I don't think uh, Major Stringer hears any of the story, but um, he, he yeah. explains that he was at, at Cambrai, or uh, I think it was, and it. Um, he 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 didn't take a position uh, at the detriment of his, you know, of his platoon. Uh, he, he kept his men safe rather than pushing on, and he's been passed over ever since. So I thought I thought that was really interesting that the you know the the Royal Marines were prepared to put so much stock into the film you know it, it's filmed at Eastleigh Barracks mm. um HMS Flint Castle and Leeds Castle are the, the German patrol boats so there's lots of sort of MOD input going into this so I, I thought that was interesting I think, I yeah, think the, reason, the reason is because the Royal Marines today uh, and the SBS, of course, because it was really Royal Marines commandos or Royal Marines special operations who actually mm. carried this operation out. Um, I, you know, it is it is the most famous mission in their in their history or certainly the most famous behind the lines mission. So I'm not entirely surprised. I mean, I think the whole group, really, they are they, the Royal Marines identify with. Um, and that's that's probably the uh, the reason for it. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Makes sense. So we, I think we should go into production, really, because it's really interesting, the the, the production of it. So um, it's directed by Jose Ferrier, stars and directs, as, as Matt said. Um, but the production company is Warwick Pictures. They're responsible for uh, The Red Beret with Alan Ladd, which is the, the sort of Americanized tale of Operation Biting, which is quite interesting. And it's the first independent film in the UK to be shot with CinemaScope and, and an anapromorphic lens, which is quite interesting film history. It's really beautiful, actually. The, it, the film looks great even today. Proper Technicolor classic, isn't it? Mm. Shot in Portugal, some of it, wasn't it, for the, for the Bordeaux scenes? It, it is beautifully shot. And um, I think you know, it's interesting that you, you say that Warwick Pictures also did the Operation Biting film, The Red Beret, because that's a very iconic, but probably less well-known story of airborne forces at the beginning of the Second World War. And mm. But but as far as the airborne, uh, as far as the parachute regiment is concerned, e- equally iconic. So uh, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if they got their assistance in the, in the making of that film too. Mm, yeah, I think they might have actually. That rings a bell. Uh, it topped the box office in 1956. I couldn't find an actual budget this week. It's really annoying. Apparently it did well in the UK, but not so well in the US. Yeah, I think that was Warwick's downfall in the end. I don't think they could get a lot of traction overseas, um, which was a shame. But they were, you know, obviously using American stars because Jose Ferrer was a big star over there, which is a a bit of a shame. And I know that Bill Sparks and uh, Blondie Hassler walked off production because of the representation of the mission. 
um, which is a very interesting uh, little tidbit there. But I've got two retro reviews this week, and they are very contrasting. So firstly, I found uh, this article from The Sketch from November 30th, 1955, and it's called Stop This Distortion and Show Us As We Are, Please See a Lejeune. It's a write-up about um, representation of, of British troops and British accents in, uh, in the Second World War. It obviously mentions Operation Burma, which uh, got the brunt of some uh, controversy in its day. But... Uh, so it says about uh, Cockleshell Heroes, it said, there is nothing to outrage British feeling in this arrangement. Mr. Ferret is a good actor and a man of sensibility. He conforms with tact to kindly portray a British officer, albeit an odd one, since the script presents Major Stringer as an idyllic amateur who is quite incapable of controlling his men until a hard-bitten regular soldier, Captain Thompson, gives him a thorough dressing down and turns this forlorn hope into a triumph. Nevertheless, Mr. Ferrer remains alien to the spirit of Operation Cockleshell. With the best will in the world, he seems out of place, both as actor and director. His handling of the mission and the men does not remind us of our share in the war. The climax, synchronising the dawn shooting of four British prisoners with the destruction of shipping, is untrue to history and subtly false to British sentiment. Once again, Hollywood has edged itself in, uh, into our island story and made us look smaller than we really are. I mean, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, and that contrasts, interestingly enough, with the premiere review from the Daily Mirror from the Friday the 18th of November 1955. And it's by Reg Whitley. The Cockleshell Heroes is a realistic version of the wartime raid by a small party of Marines on ships in the Nazi-occupied Bordeaux Harbour. The special training stuff has its moments, especially when the traditional feud between the Marines and the Navy starts a brawl. The final assault scenes are really dramatic. Trevor Howard is first rate as a stiff upper lip NCO, but Jose Ferrer is miscast as the man in charge. Grim, gripping, and good. So I thought that was really interesting. That's an interesting contrast. What do you make of that first review, Sol? Um, no, I, d I don't agree, actually. I think, uh, I think in the main, of course, the film does take historical liberties. It's bound to, and all war films do. But in the main, mm. I think it stays fairly true to the spirit, actually, of the mission. Um, and there are some really, you know, astonishing uh, links, really. I mean, there's even a line which I was just double checking in my book. It actually the exact same line they've taken from, you know, the historical record, as it were. And that's when uh, they're heading up the <laughs> up the channel uh, and they stop one night and the next morning they're bumped. Uh, that is discovered by a bunch of French people. Uh, families basically and french fishermen and that is an exact scene from the from the actual story it's in my book uh, and at one point uh, stringer who of course is playing the hasler character in real life um goes over he says look i've got to go and talk to these people because i think they know we're here a dog discovers them he goes over and he comes back and he says i think we'll be all right and that is an exact line from hasler uh you know that's what he actually said to the three remaining men with him at the time rather than i think there's another five at this stage but you know apart from the apart from uh certain moments of course which they change and certain situations and no doubt we'll talk more about that in a minute but generally speaking what they try to do which is be dropped dropped off by this submarine at the entrance uh to the estuary go all the way up the estuary uh hide up during um paddle by night and hide up during by day and then even the mission itself of course there were <laughs> things that didn't happen um but generally speaking i think it's a reasonably faithful uh retelling of what was arguably the most astonishing special operations mission and certainly the most dangerous of the second world war i think the film does really well to convey just the arduousness especially yeah. the scenes where they're, they're in um 
in that choppy sea before they actually get into the estuary. You know, I think I think it does it really well. The choppy sea again, the so-called race as it is. I mean, that's infamous at the entrance to the Gironde estuary. Uh, and they lost, in fact, two canoe, canoes at that at that point. Um, so anyway, the reason I mentioned the historical detail, which is doesn't particularly bother me that they just lost two in the film, but four in real life, is because it shows you that they've taken an element of the of the you know the the real situation and they they've turned it into drama and indeed it was drama and they dragged uh, the survivors behind the canoes for as long as they could until they decided they were going to jeopardize the mission and they yeah. cast them adrift in a rather ruthless way actually both in the film and in real life so mm. you know there there are there were lots of moments in which i felt that they'd stayed true to the spirit of the of the actual mission itself it's also that it was a movie played with a little bit of um like production hell and it had some reshoots so initially it's written by brian forbes and he's what hasn't he written he wrote the he he wrote the wooden horse called its story uh, guns at navarone really famous and then cubby broccoli who uh, goes on to produce the bond films he is involved as a producer and he brings irving allen in to do reshoots because he feels the movie's too straight he, he feels that there should be some comedic relief so and he also feels that there wasn't enough scenes that give the audience enough um, information about why the mission is the mission. Oh, yeah, the context. Mm. Yeah, so he got certain parts of the movie rewritten by Richard Malbaum, who wrote 10 or 13 of the best James Bond films. He wrote Doctor No, things like that. So wow. it, he, he rewrites the scenes, and, the, and it's the comedic scenes that get added in. So I, right. I, I wonder what happened. And apparently when Farrah found out that it was getting reshot, you know, he, he walked off he walked out so it's interesting i mean i think that maybe might feed into how the movie uh, ends so, up as hmm, so he know, may have made a much is, straighter film hmm. because it's initially based off of a reader's a reader's digest um write-up of the coco show heroes it's probably the first war movie we've done that's had real issues behind the, the camera that kind of affect the movie in, in a way yeah, you, I mean, we'll, you can we'll talk sort about of it. tell where they've slotted in that scene where they talk about the radar equipment because that's the one that was added in. Yeah, it's it. You can thinking about it. I can see where they have slotted, slotted that in. It's just a couple of German officers discussing, you know, what mm. what's on those ships. Um, yeah. So there's exposition there, isn't there? And all, but and earlier, I think you're you're referring Robbie earlier in the in in the film to when they you know they talk specifically about the, what the mission is. Uh, so it's it. quite clear that they yeah. they need to sink these ships because these ships are bringing in vital war materials. That's all you need to know, really. in, yeah. in effect. Uh, then it's a question of training and then it's a question of carrying out the mission itself. So, you know, I, I don't mind the humour, to be perfectly honest. No, I don't. I don't either. Yeah, there's the some of the best all scenes. made up. But uh, actually, a, a film of this type, which has in many ways, although a successful, but also a tragic ending, as you can see, the way they have that kind of ghostly image at the end mm. of the eight figures uh, and the two real figures. Um, I think you do need a little bit of light relief, actually. Even, even you know, going back to my book for a second, even in my book, in some of these amazing death-defying missions, that there is humour as well. Because if ever, as a writer, whenever I see humour, I always want to bring it out. And I'm sure that you know people who are making films, when they saw the first cut of this, um, it probably did need a bit of leavening, a, 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 you know, a, a something a little bit more lighthearted. And and actually, in the end, although you know both of you quite rightly say or point out that it wasn't a great success in the States. That's mainly because there's not a big American interest in terms of the heroics. Um, yeah, it did there aren't well many the big British I mean, war movies that did well in the US, are there, really? Mm, no, about no. It. But, but to top the box office in the UK is, is pretty impressive. Um, so they did something right. 
So I think that probably moves us on to talking about the a little bit about the plot and you know getting to the Ali Talinoff face scene. So it's a rough retell, loose retelling of Operation Frankton from from start to end, really, isn't it? Um, and it kicks off with you know as Matt said at the start, it's you've got Stringer coming in and setting up this band of Marines to go and blow up some ships in Bordeaux. It's you know it's all quite it take it's very A B C, isn't it? It's very here's your Marines, here's your middle soapy odd bit here's your half hour of action yes it's that classic formula isn't it where mm. you get you get training character development um a little bit of uh, men on a mission isn't it men on a men mission. on a mission a little bit of jeopardy and then you know there's the mission you get to know the, the, the they're developing the characters um you're mm-hmm. beginning to invest in some of the characters ruddick in particular yeah um who's one of the one of the marines a really big guy i mean he's the kind of you know he's the he's the uh, weightlifter or the you know the, he's the, he's the strong yeah. guy runs everywhere everyone's catching lifts at one point during the training run when they're coming back from this flight and 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 Ruddock runs all the way i mean he's looking absolutely knackered by the time he gets there but they're kind of setting up he's the physical he's the physical guy among the group and and i thought the characters were quite nicely developed actually albeit very old fashioned in in the case of the irishman who you know frankly um you'd be laughed out of court and probably arrested if you tried to write a character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's very much a caricature. And the one that is it when they're introducing each other in the barracks after they've had their big fight, it doesn't one of the guys say, oh, and here's our friend from the IRA. And you're like, yeah. oh, hang on. You know, that wouldn't fly <laughs> now, would it? You know? um, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. That bit probably gets cut out of the if ITV run it, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think it probably would. It's that middle <laughs> soapy section. It's a bit soapy with, the, with Ruddock like going off and... Well, like that's that's to... great, but I mean, yeah. if if you want to criticize any parts of the film, I think you get this quintessentially sort of British fifties scene where uh, a wren is singing to a pub with the backing of a piano and a harmonica, um, which is it, it kind of it's and then there's a big punch up between Royal Marines and and yeah. Royal Navy sailors, which is you know uh, bringing in that that rivalry between two interdependent siblings isn't it really um yeah, true but it's a good yeah. scene there. it's very wet it's a very western style brawl isn't it, it is a bit yeah um but that again a paratrooper has that um, it does gosh it does yeah, yes it, it has that um and there's, a, there's countless other films that that do that punch up and it's i suppose at the time it's it's one of those um methods of showing the men melding together yeah as so a that, unit i think yeah, that's one of the there's an element almost of slapstick of that scene. I mean, you, yeah. you, you guys have watched far more films than me, probably even from the 50s. And um, I don't know whether that was much loved at the time. I thought, I have to say, although I like some of the humour, I thought that that kind of slapstick was slight, that that slightly jarred on me, I have to say. These yeah. Well, the, the singer was, um, I think it's Panache Yana, um, Pamela Gard, who was a household name at the time. Hmm. So they've obviously slid hair cameo in you know, to, to get that that name out there when, when the when the film drops. Yeah, her voice um, was far too good for a pub pub singer. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Turn. I mean she was yeah. phenomenal. She'd be she'd be singing for the, the chaps at the front line. She wouldn't be singing in a pub somewhere, you know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was Vera that was very Vera Lynn that that singing. It was. I mean it's, I think it's maybe one of those things that it's trying to be something for everyone at times. I think this movie sometimes it falls into a little bit of it doesn't quite know what its audience is certain times until we get to that last section which is just pure mission i think it yeah it's a bit know, of a, a misstep yeah a little bit but mm. 
it's it's forgivable. I mean, the rest of the film is tightly knit together in that it's clear character development and then the actual story, the operation. By the end, you do feel that these lads are a group of people who will do the extraordinary for each other. It's where the cast comes in. They're all proper British character actors that have been in countless war films before and then go on to do countless war films after. So they know what they're doing and everyone feels real. Everyone feels apart from Farah, because he's just barely in it. For me, he's just not in it enough to merit being the main star. But I feel towards the end, I did start. I, I didn't, Initially, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to side with anyone in this picture because it sort of lost me halfway through. But by the end, I was really rooting for the, t- for the group of lads. I really wanted them to see their mission through. There's a lovely scene which I think sums up Ferrer's role in the film, to be to be truthful, because he he's the one who is miscast. I agree with that. that the point that was made in one of the uh, one of the reviews. Uh, but there's a lovely scene where <laughs> Thompson, um, it, it, who is giving the back, he's giving his backstory basically. Captain Thompson, the Trevor Howard yep. character, is giving giving his backstory, and um, and Ferrer's asleep, so he gives this very very quite moving speech about why he you know he wants redemption basically, uh, and mm. Ferrer's asleep, you know. So that's really a Trevor Howard masterclass that scene, and you don't need Ferrer in it, frankly. So. Mm. It, out quite well but it shows you how sort of redundant he was to you know bits of the film and it's it's interesting that they try and set it up as uh, as howard's character thompson being the uh the royal marine captain who will straighten the men out where they, they don't really show the men as as taking advantage of of stringer which i think sort of undermines that idea a little bit um mm. so the, they sort of say well the reason they didn't manage to canoe up the medway or wherever it is they go first is because um, it, uh, uh, was it the Thames? It might be the Thames. Yeah, um, Thames, yeah. Yeah, um, is is purely because that you aren't handling them as Marines. You aren't, you know, giving them the discipline that they need. Um, but they don't seem to be taking the liberty of, you know, Stringer's yeah. style of command. No, and there is a contradiction here. In the real world, special operations is always full of these very individual characters, and they always operate on a much looser uh, discipline. Mm. Certainly, in terms of bull and drill, or what you know, what we think was classic uh, military discipline. Yeah. You, you're individual, and you look. You're supposed to look after yourself. You're supposed to do things properly, but you're you're allowed to do it under your own steam, as it were. You know, it's self motivation. Those are the sort of characters they're looking for. And there's even a line actually that Ferret. Um, delivers in which he says what they're looking for individualists you know mm. we don't have to water around and that is exactly uh, what what really happened uh the the point about it is that they generally speaking if they if they were run by good people and Hasler, um the stringer real character was a good person he was brilliant at picking people you know that that's how these units operate so the idea that they've set him up to find those people and then he he almost fails in, in the sense that they take advantage Although I agree, agree with you, they don't really. I think they got a lot of mixed messages in there. It doesn't really work that 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 setup. Perhaps that's the rewrites coming through early yeah. on. Or, perhaps you know, I couldn't find anything to the con to, to the to the fact, but maybe the Royal Marines didn't want, you know, maybe they didn't want that representation on screen, or the Navy didn't want, you know, someone didn't somewhere didn't want, you know, them to sort of be portrayed maybe that way. Maybe it was just, yeah, it's a time of national service. Maybe you can't show military life to be a relaxing sort of jaunt maybe you have to show it to be quite it's regimented possible. i'm not yeah, sure the context yeah. of the time 1950s absolutely possible it's just 
you know, then and now, people who go into these types of units. I think there's a confusion really in the way that they were trained the unit to, to be truthful, because mm. uh, yes, they were Royal Marines, but they were Royal Marines commandos special operation. And that's very different to a normal Royal Royal Marine. So yeah. you're, getting, you're getting very much the, you know, East Knee Barracks, for, for example, like, you know, that the, the idea that they were part of the Royal Marines structure proper is 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 a mistake, really. That that's a misreading of, of the situation. And so I bet you there was tension with the way the Royal Marines wanted to portray them, but how they actually were, were was a bunch of you know self-motivated mavericks, frankly. And yeah. you need those sort of pe- people to be prepared to go on what was in effect a suicide mission. It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. It's a movie chock full of great kit. Saul, would you like to kick us off? Well, I love the little Nell because, um, you know, the, the self-destruct device. I mean, it's like, in other words, the suicide capsule, uh, yeah, but for Royal Marine Commanders because it didn't exist in the real world, but... Uh, it reminded me a little bit of, of one of those mini um, limpet mines. Um, mm-hmm. And I just thought that's a nice little touch, actually, because there are going to be moments. And of course, there were moments where they can use this thing. You know, someone's got to blow up a, a, a canoe. Um, but it, as you actually see in the in the film itself, when they when they use it, um, it it's not terribly effective. It makes a lot of no. noise, a lot, a lot <laughs> <Yeah>. of smoke. <laughs> yeah. Once the smoke clears, the, can- the canoe's still there, but it is on fire. <laughs> yes, definitely. And there's this bit, I think they use one, um, the, the, two, the two chaps, he goes, you set the little nail and we'll we'll try and scarper. And when the, the canoe blows up, it's moved about three feet forward. Did anyone notice that? There's a few <laughs> continuity things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you notice in, in um, there's, there's a bit where uh, two of the guys are getting a canoe ready. I think it's the same scene, actually. And they're in the canoe. And then next shot, they're out of the canoe. <laughs> yeah. And then they're, then they're back in the canoe. So there's a few there's a few little bits. But did you think that the representation of the Mark II canoes was was pretty spot on? Uh, the canoes look good, actually. I mean, I, yeah, I have to say, as a historian, I'm, I much prefer the people and the stories rather than really drilling down into the kit. I'm not, you know, some historians love all of that. James Holland, for example, mm-hmm. knows exactly what all the, all the kit was like. I mean, they look, they look reasonably faithful reproduction uh, reproductions to me. What, what mystified me of course, is that they suddenly more from being canoeists with limpets, which is what actually happened to uh, frogmen. So yes. <laughs> yeah, they yes. do. A confusion between the two. They, they, they did have frogmen in the Second World War, but they were not in this unit. So, mm. and you didn't need them. Uh, the reason no, they were portraying them like in the a, film a was obviously for dramatic purposes. They? Yeah, they just have a, a, a little uh, a little um, rod which mm. you place the thing on, and that that gets it because obviously it's got to blow up underwater because that's what holds the ship and that's what causes it to sink. So you need to get the mines down there, but it, but they just had these this six foot rod and that that pushed it under the water enough. So you don't need to get out of the canoe. And of course, if you if you're getting in and out of the canoe, it takes more time. It's easier to you, easier to spot you. I mean, if you just stay still in a canoe, it, the actual mission. There were many moments where they were there were sentries uh, looking at them. In fact, there's one moment where they stop still hold themselves against the ship and a, and a sentry is looking directly down at them, but it's very difficult to tell what's going on in a low profile canoe. That, that's why mm. they were so effective. You've got people swimming around in the water and getting in and out of canoes. It's, it's nowhere near as, as stealthy, should we say. It's just shocking how quickly like they, they, just turn, they just turn up in wetsuits. I'm like, when did they put them on? They'd windproof smocks on like two seconds ago. Like how did they get any of that on? Sort of, it did perplex me a little bit considering as well that 
they'd not been mentioned up to that point, I don't think, ever. No, that's no. very true. No, there was no yeah. training in for, for Frogman, was there? there were a lot, exactly. Lot of- that wasn't in the montage. Yeah. <laughs> Ruddock puts his hand up in the in the submarine and goes, Oh, I can I can use a wetsuit and diver. Oh, good. You know, there's no, there's none of that. It's just perhaps they just wanted those cool underwater scenes where it, like I think he's swimming it, towards the camera it? with the limpet mine. I think that's what they wanted, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. I think I think that's absolutely right. They're, 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 going back to the, the submarine, actually, there's a great scene where they're being um uh, depth charge, which of course actually happened to a lot of these special operations guys in the Second World War. And it's one of the most striking things about their experience. The, the guys in the Navy are all used to it in the submarine service. But the, these special operations guys who are just ca- catching a lift, basically, to go, yeah. to go to where they need to go, are not used to it at all. And it's an absolutely horrifying experience. So, But they use that for dramatic purposes in the film because they've got to knock out one of the, uh, one of the commandos so that yeah. Trevor Howard character, who's only going along to see them off, can then take over, get in one of the boats and, you know, redeem himself as, as we discussed earlier. Yeah. Trevor's seen all the training. He can, he can manage. <laughs> he hasn't <laughs> been in a canoe up to that point. No, which, he's never, which, he's never paddled way, anywhere. Not, it's not the easiest thing to do. I'm, I'm doing a charity paddle uh, maybe next year at some point with the SBS and oh, I'm dreading cool. it because it, it is absolutely knackering. It is upper body. It's, it's, it's a killer. Um, yeah. But yeah, he he does step. He, obviously, he wants to you know um, sort of redeem himself in his own mind. Yeah, it's a nice arc. I do. I like his arc. I, I think he's the, you know. I, I we I think we all agree. I mean, Trevor has not only a terrific character, but they've really you know built the script around him. In my I view, think so. Which is he's why really, he Ferrer, is the lead, really, isn't he? Yeah, which is why Ferrer really gets some um, you know gets marginalised. But maybe because he was directing as well, he didn't want to be on screen all the time, and he you know. I, I don't know if that if that's a factor. So Matt, your your alley this week? I think it's going to be the limpet mines. I've got a few. I'll, I'll go be honest, but the limpet mines they were developed by military intelligence research um, Cecil van der van der Peer, uh, Clark and Stuart McRae before the war. Actually, they they started working oh, wow. on them before the war, and it's just a great concept. I mean, you need to you need to hold a ship below the waterline. How do you do it? You you put some explosive on a mine, and it's just a, it's a great idea. I, don't think the ones represented in the film look exactly like the minds that were developed, um, but they're good enough. You know, they, they, they represent. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Stiff. 
Yeah, and and they were fairly faithful in the sense of what they did, which is mm. basically cling to the hull of hull of a ship. That's that's all exactly. you need. I mean, you, you don't need the exact reproduction. They also they also had the, a very similar timing system where you 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 broke the seal on the timer mm. and it gradually and that and that triggered the explosion. So all of that I think uh, was well done. I mean, interestingly, in the Mediterranean when they, when they started using the original limpets, they found they weren't powerful enough, so they built a kind of you know a multiple limpet, which is a triple and even a quadruple. Uh, oh, and wow. they, of course, were, were heavier to carry and harder to put on. But, um, you know, there were some pe- people in the SBS mad enough to try to use them. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. Um, I think I mentioned it earlier. Like uh, Christopher Lee plays the submarine captain, um, who is actually the only character in the film who portrays the real person. Um, I think it was uh, Alan Rakes. HMS Tuna, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Which Alan is a, Rakes. We just say that's a fantastic name for a submarine. Yeah, the, the Navy knows how to name ships, doesn't it? Yeah, they do. Um, and he has a great deck coat on right at the very end of his of his sequence. Christopher Lee doesn't have a lot to do in that film, but he he, he comes across as a decent submarine commander anyway. So very very stoic, uh, isn't he? Is it one of his earlier earlier films? I mean, obviously he's got a minor part in this, so it's quite early for him. Yeah. So for me, it's it's the Denison smocks because I love a Denison smock. Who doesn't? They look great. Um, and you see, we not only do you get Denison smocks in this film when they're there's a little training sequence where they're climbing um, some cliffs and they're all wearing smocks, which is really nice. And then on the mission, they switch into windproof smocks, um, which is, is really nice to see. I don't, don't think you've seen many of them in movies, really. And here is a telemark. There are some. Yeah, actually. Yeah. yeah but these look like a lot like of the, civilian stuff in telemark. Isn't yeah. It? The, these look like the sort of 50 second Lowland Division type mm, smocks. Yeah. And I, I wanted to ask Saul, do you know if they wore those on the on the raid? Uh, no, <laughs> right. They, they had a they had a, a, a camouflage suits, camouflage and waterproof and windproof suit. So basically, a t- you know, a, a mm-hmm. top. I mean, you you I suppose arguably you could call it a smock, but it wasn't like the airborne smock or the smock they, okay. use, they use there. And and trousers too. Um, and interesting enough, they, there, there was a debate as to whether or not they should have the badges of rank. Now, this was after the infamous uh, commando befell order, which was the. The sure. killing of commandos that was ordered by which is uh, hinted at in the film, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. That was ordered a couple of months before, so they knew that that was in you know that 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 was the danger if any of them were caught. And the reason they had their badges of rank and their and their um, uh, marines uh, markings on is because they wanted to show that they were soldiers. They didn't want to pretend they they weren't servicemen on a job. Of course, the one person who shouldn't have had his rank on there was is Trevor Howard because he wasn't going on the mission. He was wearing Lomas's kit, but he has his captain's pips. Yeah, I don't know how they, they hurriedly stitched those on. I didn't even make the connection. Oh my god! No, he, I, I noticed that just ten minutes before we started recording. I watched a couple of scenes that I, I wanted to double check on, and there he is with the pips. I was like, okay, perhaps, Did perhaps Trevor throw him a sewing kit. Like, quick, get yeah, them pips on that yeah. smock. I mean, perhaps perhaps Trevor brought that along in the hopes that you know he might get threes on a canoe <laughs> i just I got know. this image of of, of of trevor howard clutching a sewing kit and some pips thinking, please please i want to go <laughs> <laughs> oh it's great a, a quick one and it it stood up like a sore thumb and it, and it made me laugh i had to pause the film i think i laughed too hard was when the german patrol boats are chasing them that there's an awful vickers k-gun wooden mock-up which just looks like a like a, like a, a vinyl record and some yep. wooden pipe. It's just awful. And then not only there's that, but then I think they've mocked up some cannons on the back of one of them as well. And it just yeah, sticks out yeah. so badly. It, it, it very much looks like um, 50s, 60s. Well, it's definitely 50s. 
um, sort of, it almost looks a little bit like a lifeboat, doesn't it? And then they've, yeah. they've put a couple of, uh, there's a lot of guys on all of those boats, actually. Like the, the mm. Germans were not short of manpower in Bordeaux because they no, were they stacking up their, their patrol boats. No, generally speaking, you didn't you didn't get the infantry going. You know that, that yeah. idea that you got the, the the you know the normal German infantry on boats. You never would have happened. It would have been a naval naval uh, uh, operation. Yeah, by sea and by land, of course, you can use some of the. Uh, but actually, interesting enough, that whole area was under the command of the navy for obvious reasons because it's, mm. you know, it's a big naval. So actually, the the you know the the command of a lot of the soldiers, even on the ground, would have been naval too. Um, mm. But anyway. That's a minor issue. Yeah. We're not going to be overly concerned with whether they've got the right. <laughs> no, but it, that is a good Vickers Kagan. I mean, yeah, it's, that's it's, the kind of thing I would have one. mocked up in my dad's shed as a kid. <laughs> yeah, that was some, great. Some, You'd uh, have been some... the envy of the street, wouldn't you? you I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then just quickly, there's, there's Bedford O'Wise with a, a um, that you see predominantly. So, And that's the first time we've had any Beddies feature for a, for a few it's weeks. A while, so it was just nice. Hello, I'm Al Murray, and you're listening to Fighting on Film, the world's number one war film podcast. So, Saul, you're our guest, please. Your fave scene. Well, I love the character arc uh, of Trevor Howard. Um, one of the moments where you know he's coming round, and he, you know, he's he's buying into this this group of misfits um, as they begin with this group of undisciplined misfits is when he goes in search of Ruddock who's gone missing basically and and Ruddock's one of only you know eight people so they need to get him back before the mission goes to find him goes to his house and and speaks to the wife who's clearly got a lover in tow in fact the lover then comes and speaks to him and gives him you know gives him a bit of lip he then goes and drowns his sorrow in a pub where he meets Ruddock uh, and realizes what Ruddock's about to do and not only encourages him but virtually orders him and says Take as yeah. much time as you need to give that guy a good hiding. And then the scene itself is basically the fight going on while Trevor Howard's standing outside. And you all you hear is the noise, the noise of the punches, the noise of the furniture breaking, the noise of his wife screaming. And then eventually the guy comes through the window. <laughs> Meanwhile, a policeman's watching. Uh, uh, Trevor Howard's talking to the policeman saying, don't worry, we've got this in hand. And the policeman is entirely cooperating and saying, no problem. Yeah. This guy obviously needs to be dealt with. So there's a little morality tale set in all of that, and I thought it was nicely done. It's a, it's a bit. It was a, it was a bit slapstick too, to be honest. But I thought it was well done. Yeah, it was. it's better, better handled than the bar fight. I do like that. I think perhaps maybe, maybe Trevor wouldn't have been as hard on the the uh, the, the, the living boyfriend if he hadn't kept calling him soldier. Oh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, he does give him a bit. I don't take any orders from you. You know, I'm not. You know, but the. the the dialogue with the policeman is just fantastic. And you, he's yes. going, oh, you know, should I, should I stop it? And, and that's quiet this evening, isn't it? it yeah. <laughs> I just love it. It's just great dialogue. I think that's where the, those reshoots come in and the, the rewriting of the script by, by Malbaum or Malbaum. It really sort of shines through in those sequences. It's, it's there is some great dialogue in there. Yeah. I think it's, it's a development of how it's character as well, isn't it? And then obviously Ruddock, who's who he goes with on, on the mission so it's a nice yeah, little exactly so that they're, they're, they're setting up the buddy thing and of course you know that that won't be resolved until later as i've explained you know with the incident on the submarine but they've set up nicely the bond between those two uh, and they're mm. going to go all the way to the end together uh and yeah. it's nicely done i think no it is, it is. matt uh my favorite scene well i think i really enjoyed the um the scene where uh stringer is trying to weed out who from the volunteers that arrive, he's going to 
take into training and, and, and take on the mission. And he, he decides the best way to, to sort of pick out the individuals, the, the men he needs with the right fighting spirit is to get them all kitted up as, um, as paratroopers and throw them out of a plane and, and, and see just how long they last and can they get back to, to the barracks uh, in German kit. And that, that leads to some of the, the, the funniest parts of the film. So we've talked a fair bit now about the humour of the film. But I think for me, that bit is one of the bits that works the best. So you've got you've got Ruddock strips off completely as soon as he takes his parachute, as soon as he lands, takes his parachute off, takes off the German uniform, ditches his, um, his helmet down to his sort of like PT gear and just jogs all the way back to the barracks. Yeah, absolutely knackered by the end of it. But he, he it just it, it's building the characters um, because you've got this sort of joker of the of the section where he goes into a costume shop sort of hires a, a pseudo Italian generissimo sort of outfit yeah, and yeah. arrives back at barracks by taxi. Um, but great. yeah, there's lots of great bits, chaps jumping into the back of trains and, and mm. all sorts. I, I just really like that scene. I thought it was an interesting sort of concept. I don't, I don't know whether anything like that was ever done, but I can, I can certainly see where they might've gotten that from. I think that echoes what Sol was saying, where it, that's where the film shows the individualism. Mm it sort of does it once. So maybe that is just, they're trying to show you that in that sequence. They're just trying to show, look, these lads are, they're not your straight down the line soldiers. They are a bit different. Yeah. The, uh, the idea of jumping out of a plane, um, um, which by the way, the, the, these commanders were never parachute trained. Uh, so mm. I, I, did, I did chuckle a bit as soon as I saw the, the parachute on their arms at the beginning, but uh, e- even if they had been the idea, they're going to jump out of a plane with, in a German uniform uh, and not be strung up when they land on the ground by the locals. Yeah. Is a bit optimistic to be. There's that scene where the, the Irish um, lad gets in the van. He has, he has like a lift, doesn't he? And the guy goes, yeah. "Oh, you know, what are you what are you dressed as?" And he's like, "Oh, I'm Salvation Army, Irish Salvation Army." Yeah. <laughs> he's like, "Oh, I might have known from the uniform." And it's like, "How would you? It's 1942. How would you not know what a Wehrmacht uniform looks like?" It's just, <laughs> oh, it's so it's so funny. I love that scene. It's great. Yeah, it's a good one. And for me, I mean, this week I found it hard to have a, a favorite scene. I don't know why. I just nothing really stood out until the end for me. And it's when Trevor Howard um, is captured finally after, you know, trying to escape. Um, and they're given ultimatum by the, the German officer. You know, tell us why you're here and what you're doing and we'll go easy on you. Trevor Howard just stoically staring at him and they take him off to be executed with the rest of the men. And it's just before uh, Trevor and the, the rest of the, the, the men are shot. He... It's, he got his arm in a sling, still very stoic, stiff upper lip, and he turns to the, the rest of it, the chaps and says, keep the line straight, boys. What a great line to end on. It reminds me of the, you know, the end of Breaker Moran, where he's like, come on, you bastards, you know. Yeah, great, great line. And then bang. Uh, and, mm. and of course, I, you know, there was some criticism uh, <laughs> in the reviews at the time that, you know, the, the, the juxtaposition of the execution and the explosions. But again, I thought that was... I thought that was done very well. It didn't happen in real life. They were executed at you know separate times after the event, as it were. Uh, mm. But it doesn't matter. The, the the principle of saying these guys were prepared to give their all, uh, and it's interesting in the in the in- actual interrogations of the guys who were captured, they gave very little away, and that was crucial because some were captured quite early on in the mission, mm. uh, and the Germans didn't have any idea what was actually happening until those ships blew up. So I thought the sacrifice of the guys who were executed, and six of them were in in real life. 
uh, and the and the success of the mission, I, I thought that worked very well, and it was it was very apt. And you get the you know you get the payoff of at least two make it out. And I think you could make a movie about the about Hassler and and Sparks getting back to Spain on its own. I think that'd make a fantastic film. Yeah, that was a shame, really, because they, you know, they've got them trundling down a road. But oh, my goodness, the, you know, the escapades, the, you know, the, the, as you say, it's, it was extraordinary. And in fact, another pair do escape into Vichy, France. One of the tragedies of the real story is they're handed over to the Germans by the by the French. Um, oh, wow. So <laughs> having said that, uh, other French, of course, resistance French help help Hasler and Sparks get away. So, you know, it's it's light and shade, really. But mm. um, yeah, no, there's some great stories which they could have gone into. But I suppose the high point is the blowing up of the ships. So it was fairly logical uh, that they would they would want to end at that point. Mm. Yeah, no, it does make Decent sense. Decent bit of model work there as well. Yeah, it's the, quite uh, good, isn't it? The explosions, yeah. etc. Some of some of it's a little bit ropey. The, uh, the bit where Victor Madden's character, Sergeant Craig, um, Quite early on in the raid, actually, he throws one of the, the limpets up on the the patrol boat. There's a there's a cut where it cuts from the actual scene with the actual patrol boat to as the bomb explodes, a model, and it, it it's <laughs> yeah, not it's not very convincing. Not, it looks a bit Playmobil, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> it, it goes off. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like a Thomas the Tank sort of disaster <laughs> is, scene, yeah. <laughs> sort of sort of thing. But the, yeah. the, that final scene with the with the the, the docks going up, it, it's not it's not bad at all. I mean, there's, there's, there's better model work out there, but it's it's it doesn't let the film down. No, it doesn't. Say. And for 1955, it looks good. It's yeah. aged quite well. I think the film. It's one of its strengths. The cinematographer on the film was John Wilcox, who worked on Carvening with Pride as well. Yep. As well as um, Summer Holiday with Cliff Richard, but that that's not a war film, so we, we can't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, and the soundtrack I think is really underrated in in the world of war movie soundtracks. I oh, really think it's really good. I think it's underrated. Yeah, hmm. um, and it's by um, John Addison who did the soundtrack for A Bridge Too Far and was yes. famously in Thirty Core. Recognize that name? Yeah, um, and he yeah, he did Monty's. Uh, I was Monty's Darball. Guns at Batazi, Reach for the Sky, countless soundtracks. So it, I think it's a really good one. And don't they use it for the Royal Marine March now? I think it might be actually. It might be the Royal Marine March. I, I think yeah. I think that's one of the one of you know one of the uh, one of the incentives for for using it. But it surprises me actually that Cockleshell Heroes is not shown more frequently actually because it, it's you know you can hardly catch it these days. And of course we we've still got some of the classics like Zulu and The Bridge Too Far. Um, you know, which is shown fairly regularly on one channel or another. And it's um, yeah. it's a shame, really, not least because it was so successful at the time. I mean, arguably more successful than Zulu at the time in terms of box office success. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's Trevor Howard, too. Like, yeah. There should be more Trevor Howard films on. Definitely <laughs> should. That's, and so, that's it. I mean, that, that's mm. the takeaway. <laughs> so, yeah, this week's a bit different. So we will do final thoughts, I think, now. And then we've got some questions from our Patreons um, for Saul. So, um, you know, if you support the podcast, when we get guests on, we'll, we'll try and do these questions a little bit more. So, any final thoughts on Coco Shell Heroes? Just to say I was pleasantly surprised. I really enjoyed it, actually. I mean, I, I saw it years ago. I haven't seen it for, for many years. 
Um, I've just written the story, okay? So I'm invested yeah. in the story. But there's also a risk as a historian. You've got far too much detail in your head about what really happened. You, you're picking holes in in, in a dramatization. And mm. as you said earlier, famously, Hasler walked off the set, or at least he refused to go to the uh, to the premiere. Hasler right. and Sparks, interesting enough, were technical advisors. But Hasler was the one who, who was closest to the action, so to speak. And he... Uh, although he didn't, although he didn't get on with, um, uh, or he disagreed with what had happened uh, in terms of the final cut of the film, it may be a bit of solidarity with Ferrer actually, in the fact that he, you know, he he wasn't happy Could either. Be. Because they became lifelong friends, believe it or not. Um, wow. you know, very different okay. characters, but uh, they became good mates. So, uh, but overall, I, I was pleasantly surprised. Although it was a good film, stayed true to the real story, and was pretty entertaining too. Uh, Matt. I enjoyed it. I, I thought that the pacing um, with the, uh, the the first two acts being very sort of methodical in showing the, the training and the develop, development of characters was perhaps a little too drawn out. Um, but the payoff at the end is great. Uh, it's well, for one, we get to see um, Trevor Howard with almost every type of Sten gun ever made in this film. Yeah, so it's nice. another co continuity thing, but um, just before the uh, scene uh, that Saul mentioned earlier with the French fishermen and their families, he's the one who's on um, on lookout and he's armed with a Mark II Sten. In the next scene or next shot, he's holding a Mark III. And then later in the film, he's holding a Mark I Star, which is a fairly rare yeah. Sten that you don't see too often. But that's something I forgot to mention in the alley tally. But I, I really enjoyed the film. I think it's um it's it its effort to sort of portray the action is commendable because obviously it's difficult to make a film about something that was a success but also one bought at a high price. Yeah. So you need to get your your audience invested in those characters to to feel the weight, the emotional weight of 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 that ending, I think. And I think the film does that. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just sort of the same for me, really. I The pacing annoyed me a little bit. I think they could have done more with the mission, maybe have half the film be the mission, half the film be the training. That would have been better for me, just as, just as a viewer. You know, I'd, I'd love to have seen more of the mission because it was, it was really well done and really sort of tense. You know, I really wanted everyone to get away. Mm. Um, and, you know, the ending is quite hard-hitting. You know, that that ghostly image of them all walking together at the end, I think it's really nice and, and a different way of wrapping up a fifties war film. I think it's sometimes these movies, not British movies, maybe, but more American films, they don't usually show the price of an action as much sometimes. And because sometimes some of the, the movies we review are, are fictional as well, based in reality, but fiction, they don't touch on the, the you know, the human cost of it. But I like that the fact that the movie at the end did show the men, that, that passed on, on the mission which was really nice um, and it was an, a nice end I, I enjoyed it it's I think it's hard not to like a Technicolor 50s movie they've just got a charm to them it, mm. you know and you can I think when I was writing my notes I was quite critical of it but then today I sort of softened up on it I'd, I'd watched a few more scenes and I thought yeah, actually you know what I can't hate it as much as I thought I did initially and I, <laughs> I sort of have softened up today I'm thinking actually yeah, it'll stand the test of time just because the actors that are in it. I think it, it's the cast it's a very good that cast. really elevates yeah. it. It's the cast. Um, but yeah, so as I said, 
we got some questions for Saul from our Patreons. So hopefully Saul's not too um, overcooked with his research for the book. <laughs> he won't mind answering some questions. So first off, we've got from Andy Moody. He, he asks, I remember hearing that there was an SOE operation going on at the same time as a Cockle Shell Heroes raid in Bordeaux. Brave as these guys were on operations, does Saul think the lack of interagency and inter-service coordination was a problem and one that was symptomatic of a British make-it-up-as-we-go-along method? Well, it often was a problem, but I think that charge of, of the SOE actually, you know, could have, could have, were planning to do the job, could have done it and probably could have done it with less loss of life, uh, is inaccurate. I think it's a bit of a myth, actually. I mean, the SOE were, were getting their paws into everything, frankly, at this point. And one of my previous books is a story of uh, uh, an American Canadian outfit that was about to go on a mission in, in Norway and they were bumped by the SOE. So there, there was very much a, 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 a competition for who was going to carry out these sort of raids. But this one, in my view, in terms of the, the, the use of getting explosives in there and the way you get in there to, to a port 60 miles up a river uh, quietly and silently by these canoeists. I think it was it was it was genius, but it was also incredibly difficult. I mean, the main problem you've got is you can't get out. So that's why it's a suicide mission. Not not because of imagining they could never get there, but it's almost impossible to get out. But yeah. but no, getting back to the specifics of the of the question, I've I've heard that before. It is true that there was often uh, interagency um, competition. So it's absolutely right to raise that point, and that probably did cost some missions their efficiency so to speak, because one lot were desperately trying to do it too early or before the other lot could get in. But that was not the case in this situation. That, that is a bit of a myth. And I think that myth was exploded when Paddy Ashdown, interestingly enough, wrote his book a few years ago. He, he looked into that with a, with, with a fair amount of detail. My book, of course, is the SBS generally all the way through the Second World War. So although there's four pretty meaty chapters on Frankton, um, you know, it's not, it's not the main focus of, of, of the book. Oh, great. Great. Um, so next up, we have Thomas McCall and he says, I'm a huge fan of Saul's books. And my question is, what relevance, if any, does the SBS have today? Have we got have we gone past the need for the hit and run caution carry approach of the SBS and other special forces? Absolutely not. They've never been more important. And of course, the, the real problem the SBS have got is that. Uh, because of what they do, we don't hear about 95 percent of it. Uh, and, and even more so than that. The, the ethos of the service uh, going all the way back to the Second World War is getting in quiet, unassuming types who don't boast about what they do. And as they put it, who go in quietly in the back door and uh, stealthily not making any noise. And that's how they've always been. Now, they have a slightly more of, a, of an aggressive, aggressive role these days. But one thing I discovered with you know great access to the SBS not only to their archives, but the current unit. I spent a whole day with them and they briefed me on what they were doing all around the world. And frankly, wow. it, was, it was a real eye opener. I mean, they took me into the operations room. Needless to say, I can't say anything about the No, detail, of course, of course. But you know, to tell you that the sheer volume of things they're doing from hostage rescue to close protection to assisting with other armed forces to, you know, anti-terrorism all the way around the world. I mean, it is amazing. They're, they're operating in multiple countries all the time, as are the SAS, in a role that we 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 wouldn't even imagine, frankly. Uh, and of course, they'll not every operation is going to go beautifully, but they are working tirelessly to you know for this country's security. Uh, and given the main threat we face now, it's not an existential one, I don't believe. Uh, although we've been trying to be sold the idea it is, but the main threat, of course, has been from terrorism in various forms over the last few years. And special forces have never been more needed, and the SBS are as good as it gets. 
Hope that answers your question, Tom. Uh, next, we have Mary Brazier. Uh, she asks, thinking of the film Cockleshell Heroes, which is so well known, how mindful are you of having to dispel narrative myths? I don't mind in a film that they take liberties with the actual narrative. I mean, when you're writing the book, of course, you're determined to dispel myth. You're determined to overturn, uh, you know, inaccuracies. But when you come to the story of the of the Cockleshell Heroes told in film, it's completely legitimate to me. Uh, that that liberties are taken. Having said that, of course, you know my my job is to is to uh, it's to big up the story if if it if it deserves it. In other words, you know you're you're always looking for drama, you're always looking for humour, you're always looking for human interest. Frankly, if you want to sell a history book, you need all those elements, just uh, as you would in a novel and just as you would in a in a film. Um, mm. We're not allowed to make stuff up, and that's the that's the beauty of a film. And I you know I wrote a few novels. Uh, uh, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, in fact, one of them came out four or five years ago. And that was a great release for me as a historian, actually, to be able to cross that, that invisible line, as it were, uh, and, and actually make stuff up. Because you can you know the basic background to the story, uh, but you can start speculating uh, through character and plot. Um, so there's a lot of room in my mind for both historical fiction and uh, good war films. And I don't mind that they don't uh, follow absolutely accurately the, you know, the narrative, the true narrative. So to speak absolutely so the last question i have um, we have for you today saw is uh from paul hicks and he asked with jose ferrer's accent not being close to being british in the cockle shell heroes how much historic historical inaccuracy can you take before you say enough is enough side note what's your favorite inaccuracy that's made when you switch off a historical war film Ooh, crikey! I mean, that, that, that's that a tough last, one. That last one, there might be, that might be a list. Actually, I've got a good one for the last one, which I'll come to in a second. I mean, Jose Ferrer was was miscast, as I think we've all agreed. Um, mm. In that role, it should have been, uh, you know, it, 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 Trevor Howard, frankly, could have played played the role. You could have switched. You could have switched it. I think he was brilliant to, as the captain, but he he could have played the main role. I don't mind that they get the accents wrong. I don't mind that they get some of the actual story wrong, to be honest, as long as they stay true, as I said before, to the spirit of the real story. And they did th that in this film. I think the overarching uh, story of the mission and how it was carried out stays very faithful uh, to the real thing. So I don't mind the odd liberty and I don't mind that they get the kit wrong and all of that. And I don't mind the dramatic license uh, to be truthful. Um, what's my <laughs> the, what, what, what's my favorite inaccuracy in a war film would have to come from Zulu, which is uh, arguably mine and many other people's favorite war film of all time. Um, but there's a great scene where they're singing um, uh, <laughs> Men of Harlock. Uh, as I think it's either as the battle's about to begin or the battle ends. I can't remember exactly where it is. Towards but it's the end, isn't it? Moment. Yeah, they, they, the Zulus reappear and they go, oh, God. That's and right. And singing. Singing. That's right. And they're singing Men of Harlock. And, and it, in other words, it's a, it's a war chant to each other. And, and mm. while that's true to a certain extent, there's a certain amount of mutual respect, albeit, you know, um, horror on the part of the Zulus is how many lives they'd lost there. But what is inaccurate is the idea that the South Wales borderers, and you both of you may be surprised to hear this, were actually dominated by the Welsh. Um, not true. In fact, wow. they weren't even the South Wales borderers at the time. They were they were the Warwickshire Regiment, um, which morphs into the South Wales borderers a few years later. But when the Zulu War takes place, they are the Warwickshire Regiment. And I did a breakdown of it in my book, Zulu, and only a very small percentage were actually Welsh. So the chances of you getting a group of them singing the Men of Harlech, which probably hadn't even been composed at that time, although I'm not absolutely certain about that, um, you know, is, is, you know, one of the great myths, really, that they were all Welshmen. 
<laughs> oh, fantastic well thank you so much for thank you so much for answering those questions um and of course if you would like to maybe have the opportunity to ask another guest some questions please do check out the patreon um and consider supporting us so so i really want to thank you for coming on me and matt are huge fans of your work and of course um everyone who's listening go out and get sbs silent warriors i don't think you'll be disappointed most definitely well, thanks, guys. Love the podcast. Um, really good to talk to you, and I'd love to come on again. Let's talk about Charge of the Light Brigade Zoom. Oh, yes. Charge of the Light Brigade. That'd be a great one. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on, Saul. And, yeah, everyone, um, as always, don't forget to like, share, subscribe to the pod, wherever you're listening on. Follow us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Um, support on Patreon if you can. And we'll catch you again in the next one. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.